Hello, and welcome to the Her Voice podcast. I'm Komal Caruso, your host and chief revenue officer of HerMD. We're a female forward wellness center committed to empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Our founder and CEO, Dr. Somi Javade, is revolutionizing women's sexual health care. She trains other physicians across the country on the newest treatment options for women, has led research studies, worked with the FDA, and is part of the Right to Desire campaign. She founded HerMD five years ago to close the gender gap in sexual health care and give all women access to health care and to the providers that they deserve. She's here with me today, along with our Chief Strategy Officer, Kathy Lai, to talk about why it is her time in healthcare and why physicians should be bringing sexual health care into their practice. Welcome, ladies. Hey. All right. So we've been doing this podcast for several weeks now. It's been a lot of fun. And I heard you guys chatting a little bit about a Harry Potter podcast, which <laughs> yes. I don't know anything about, and I'd love to hear about it. What is this? So first of all, this is not an ad. We are not being paid to say this. We're just huge Harry Potter fans. So I've been listening to Binge Mode, the Harry Potter series, and it's just two people. I believe they come from the sports world, but I wouldn't know because I know nothing about sports. But they are also huge Harry Potter fans, and I think they also did a podcast series on Game of Thrones, too, which I'm also a big nerd for. So essentially what they do is there's 70 episodes where they just take like four or five chapters in each episode from the books and break it down. And they point out all these amazing insights that I've never noticed before. And they also review it in the context of knowing the complete story. So there's like things that you didn't notice the first time you read the book that they point out. Like, for example, the motorbike that Hagrid uses to bring Harry Potter to his house immediately after his parents are killed was lent to him by Sirius Black. And at that time, you have like no idea who that person is and what role he's going to play in the books. But they point out little things like that. And it's just like little nuggets. And they also point out like the genius of J.K. Rowling and how she uses just very subtle writing tricks to draw people in. Like when they start the books, she refers to it as our story begins. And just by using the word "our," for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, draws people in and makes people feel invested. And they're just huge fans of the book series and JK Rowling that it makes you love the series even more. And like warning, you will want to read all the books again after listening to the podcast. So not only do you have to invest like 70 hours of your life to listen to all the episodes, but then you will also have to reread all the books. So it's a huge time suck, but it's totally worth it. I think we should get paid by the Harry Potter people for that and the other <laughs> podcast based on your glowing recommendation of all of that. So I'm excited that you recommended that. And when she says Harry Potter fans, what Kathy really means is nerds, um, because it may or may not have happened when the final book came out that six books were delivered to my home on the same day, because multiple members of my family were reading the series and God forbid we had to share a book. So I've read the series once. Obviously, Kathy, you have read it more than once because you said as I read the series for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, caught red-handed. And I think I've been to Harry Potter World not once, not twice, 
so maybe three times um, with my children. And I literally was like a five-year-old. I walked in and I was like, oh my God, it's like walking into the book. This is amazing. <laughs> and- oh my God. Just walking into Diagon Alley for the first time. Yeah. Was amazing. And then Monty and I, you know, on the butter beers and our brother too, you know, um, <laughs> obsessed. There's got to be something with the sports world and Harry Potter, right? Um, so obviously- Well, they do talk about Quidditch a lot. Quidditch. So. They oh. talk about Quidditch. Yes. Yes. Which I remember, I think that we were actually in Chicago, uh, like at Northwestern, like several years ago, I think it was maybe for a game. I went down there and we saw people playing Quidditch. <laughs> And Moon almost died. Was Kathy on that field? Was Kathy on that field? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So with that, I'm super excited about our topic today. We're talking women's sexual health care and why the time is now. So let's start at the beginning. So I mean, you clearly saw a need for this many years ago when far fewer than even maybe 30% of OBGYNs were practicing sexual health care. So why the time now and why did you begin um, in women's sexual health care? So, you know, being an OBGYN and talking to women about their reproductive care and their menopausal care, obviously sexual health care is integral to their overall health. And when I first started out in private practice, uh, listening to these stories about women coming in with sexual pain, decreased desire, there was nothing we could really offer them. There were no prescription medications. There was nothing that uh, we could do other than sending them to therapists or offering them some over-the-counter remedies. And there was no place where women could learn about their anatomy or learn about what was wrong with them. And they felt broken and they felt like... They just had to live that way. And I was very frustrated and I was very committed to helping these patients. Uh, So went ahead and, you know, I was a board certified OBGYN at this point, went ahead and got some further training specifically in sexual health and decided to really dedicate my practice and my life to empowering and educating women about their sexual health. So when I first started working with you, Somi, and you talked about sexual health, I don't even think as a woman I understood what that meant. But then when I hear you talk about some patient stories, it really hit home to me like how much this really impacts their level of happiness, the satisfaction in their relationships, their entire life. Um, gets impacted by these issues. So I don't know if you want to share just like one of the patient stories that you've dealt with. Yeah. So I had a patient who flew out from, you know, so our our practice is in Cincinnati and I had a patient fly out from Seattle and she had a condition called vaginismus, um, which a lot of women don't even know what that is, but it's either very painful penetration of anything, a speculum, a penis, or the complete inability to, uh, for anything to enter the vaginal canal. And it's this involuntary contraction of all the muscles surrounding the vaginal opening. Um, And usually there's some trigger, Uh, there's an emotional trigger or a physical trigger, you know, either an injury or an attempt at intercourse or the God forbid, you know, trauma, either someone had, you know, been assaulted in the past or been raped, or there had been an attempt 
So the brain, our biggest sex organ, but also our protector, then fires signals and kind of closes the opening. Just like, you know, I, I tell patients, when you touch something hot, you don't have to think, oh my gosh, that's hot and pull your mm-hmm. hand away. It's like an autonomic reflex that happens. And so she had been married eight years and had never been able to have um, sexual intercourse in the traditional manner. And obviously it was wearing very thin on both of them. Uh, Their quality of life was decreased. Uh, She was anxious. Her self-confidence was gone. He was a very supportive husband, um, but sometimes when women find themselves in situations, they're actually threatened and uh, their partners will tell them, hey, if you don't get this fixed, we're getting a divorce because I need sex and putting even more pressure on these patients. She bought a plane ticket. She stayed in Cincinnati for a couple of days and we were able to treat her with Botox and now they're sexually active. I mean, can you imagine the pain? Um, You're in a marriage for eight years and you're not able to have that level of intimacy with your spouse and you want to, and the desire is there, but your body just won't cooperate. And she talked about being trapped in this body that just wouldn't allow her to have that uh, relationship with her husband and to be able to deliver that kind of care to her was absolutely uh, so satisfying for me and for my staff. And and those are the kind of things that we do in our center at Cincinnati um, that makes all of us very happy to come to work on a daily basis. Why did she have to fly all the way from Seattle to Cincinnati? Like why was she not able to receive the type of care that she needed in her hometown? So the sad thing is, you know, less than 40% of OBGYNs even ask their patients about sexual health care and even less are trained. And there are a handful of doctors performing Botox for this condition. And so she had not yet been diagnosed. She didn't understand why her body was doing this. She had tried to seek local help and um, everyone kind of put their hands up and said, we can't help you. We don't know what's going on. And she did a Google search and, you know, a lot of procedures in our office, we are an insurance-based system. Botox is not, but we are still able to offer it significantly cheaper than the other few practices that are doing that. And so because our visits are under insurance and, you know, the Botox was cheaper at our office and that I have that level of expertise that just a handful of people have. That's why she had to fly from Seattle to Cincinnati. And she said that with her air and her hotel, it was still more cost effective to come to us than it was to go anywhere else. That's just so crazy to think that she had to fly literally across the country to find someone to treat this problem that, you know, many women do have. I, for one, even before I started working with you too, and you're my sister and I, you know, I know what you do. I didn't know about all of these conditions. I didn't know that so many women, I think nearly 40% do suffer from some type of sexual dysfunction and, and none of us really talk about it. It's so interesting. We don't know our anatomy. And then you said in, you know, when we were talking about that, well, we weren't even taught in med school about treating sexual health patients. Yeah. So, and I get, I I was also a professor for a while. So I get to, you know, talk about it from being the student and the professor. Most uh, residency programs where doctors train, there's no sexual health training beyond reproduction. How do you help patients get pregnant? 
How do you prevent pregnancy via contraception? And how do you treat sexually transmitted diseases? Now on the male side, you know, Kathy and I was at a, were at a conference and it was 80% male sexual health care. And, you know, there's talk about penile implants and the 26 medications that men have and um, erectile dysfunction. We all know what that is. But, you know, there is up until now really been no good programs for OBGYNs to learn about pleasure and desire and orgasm and truly learning about sexual dysfunction. There are a couple of organizations now where you can go and get trained. And then there are um, people like me who are preceptors where practicing OBGYNs or internists can come learn and see how we apply the little research that's out there for women into real life practice. And how do you treat patients with sexual dysfunction and what sexual dysfunction is out there? You know, people ask me that all the time. Well, what's sexual dysfunction for women? And it's four categories, you know, it's pain, with sex, whether it's in the vagina or in the abdomen or pelvis, there's arousal disorders, which, you know, you have the desire and you want to have sex, but your body just doesn't cooperate. You don't have lubrication and your body doesn't respond. Your muscles don't relax. There is a desire disorder, which I know you both didn't know what that was. And it's HSDD, right? Hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And that's where there's absence or very minimal desire or intent to want to be intimate. And then there's problems with orgasm, whether it's no orgasm at all. And I actually have a really funny story to share about that. Or, you know, it takes people forever. There's latency to orgasm, or it's just very diminished, you know, just like muscles, the contractions don't feel as strong to women anymore. And there's treatment options for all buckets of the disorders. And patients sit in the office and they cry because they, number one, finally understand that there's a name to what's going on with them. And they're like, what? You mean I'm not crazy? So the first thing is just education and reassurance. And then the second thing is like, okay, well, I'm sure there's nothing you can do for me. And when I tell them all the options they have, there's more tears. And then this time it's tears of joy because not only do they have an answer, but they recognize that there is a, a solution. And that ends up being a very satisfying conversation, but it's a long conversation. And so that's the other barrier to practicing or providing good sexual health care for a lot of other providers. So um, even if they did get the education, it's like, how did they implement the time in a traditional model, right? Where you're given an average of 15 minutes. It, it can't happen. It, it either has to happen over multiple visits or you have to bring some cash flow into your practice that allows you to spend, you know, I spend 60 minutes with these patients on the first visit. Um, and that's a luxury in today's healthcare system. So are you going to tell us a story or what? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, story. Okay. So I had a patient who had not had an orgasm in eight years. And the reason is, is she was placed on an antidepressant. And you both have heard me say this before, that I don't believe a woman should have to choose between her mental health and her sexual health. I believe they go hand in hand. Unfortunately, a lot of antidepressants impair either desire um, or orgasm or both. So you get to be happier, but then you have an impaired sex life. And so she was doing really well as far as her mental health, but she had lost the ability to orgasm. 
So we tried a couple of different treatment options and I saw her the next week and she's laughing in the office. And I said, what happened? And she's like, okay, after my wedding day and the birth of my children, this weekend was the best. And I said, what (laughs) happened? And she's like, Dr. Javade, I lost count of how many orgasms I had. I did not want to get out of bed. And I was like, well, tell me more. (laughs) And so, you know, one of the treatment options I had offered her, it, it, it worked. It helped with the neurotransmitter issues that she was having. She had multiple orgasms. And every time I see this patient now, she's smiling. I'm sure her husband is as well. But it was really gratifying to give her back her ability to orgasm. And so that was a that was a fun story and a funny story. <laughs> as you've been practicing sexual health care, it's been many years. Talk about how things have changed and why you think, you know, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg right now. Oh yeah, we're it's it, I think it's finally we're flipping the script. So currently there are 26 medications for men and only two for women. And as of 2015 there were zero options for women. So uh, definitely more and more women are coming forward, talking about their sexual health care. They're Google searching. It's one of the top five Google searches right now is desire and sexual health care. So women are definitely leading the march. There are more educational campaigns out there. I was part of a great one called the Right to Desire. I will tell you, I've, I've had the opportunity to be a key opinion leader for a lot of different medications um, and treatment options for women. And we realized that before we just talked to women about medication, they needed to understand their condition. I have had a lecture where I was teaching OBGYNs about treatment options, and I had a uh, practicing OBGYN stand up and walk out. And before he walked out on my lecture, he said to me, well, I don't believe this is a real condition. And if a woman just doesn't want to have sex, she doesn't want to have sex. And I certainly understand that women absolutely have a right to say no. And you don't have to be HSDD is women who, who have lost their desire and are upset about it. That's part of the definition that it's distressing to them. And it's not attributable to any other condition, meaning it's not relationship you know, related, like they don't like their husband or, you know, that it's due to a baby that's keeping them up all night or the fact that they have intractable migraine headaches. So those are, you know, key components of that definition. But I here I have this physician that I was training and he walked out. So we realized that there are no safe places for both providers and patients to learn about these conditions, to learn about anatomy, and to learn about the treatment options. So the Right to Desire campaign was set up to teach everybody that this condition does exist, that it's affecting millions of women, and that there are currently finally treatment options out there. So, you know, pharmaceutical companies are leading the change, patients are coming forward, And there are more doctors like myself that are going to conferences that are coming and doing preceptorships and they're, they're learning. And then I think it's also market driven. You know, we're seeing more and more sexual health companies that are making lubricants, that are making arousal serums, that are making sexual aids that help with sexual pain. So I see, I think we're seeing it all across the board. Uh, for sure. And then definitely I'm seeing more and more on social media. And so the time is now women are, are wanting this and we need to provide this care for them if we're going to treat the entire patient. 
Can you talk a little bit about how your career changed when you made the shift to add sexual health care to your area of expertise? Yeah, so I was a full-time employed OBGYN, seeing roughly about, you know, 50 patients a day. And, you know, I've heard this story before, quit, bought a building, opened my practice in Cincinnati, Ohio, not the coasts where the other sexual health centers were. Knew I wanted to do it within an insurance system, put a medical spa in the practice, and the marriage of aesthetics and sexual health came to fruition. And it allowed me to spend this time with these patients. It has been very, very rewarding. So I spend my days, about 75% of my practice is dedicated to uh, female sexual health care. I no longer deliver babies uh, because I cannot have the time to be on call for 36, 48 hours and still take care of these patients. And I've also given up all major gynecologic surgery as far as hysterectomies and going to the hospital. My partner does that so that I truly can dedicate my time to research studies. Women are underrepresented currently in three out of every four major um, medical studies, which has rendered this very dangerous one-size-fits-all kind of approach to medical care for women, and also defines the norm as, you know, men. And obviously with sexual dysfunction, we need more and more research. It's allowed me to lecture. It's allowed me to bring in other practicing physicians and teach them about sexual health care. It allows me to truly educate everyone because it's the only way we're going to make change. And so my life completely changed and allowed me to really be an advocate for women and to change sexual health care as we know it. You know, that's amazing. You're being humble because you keep saying we're in Cincinnati. You have 7,000 patients and they're not (laughs) just from Cincinnati. Where do you pull from? And they're coming to you for, for sexual health care, right? That's their yes. main, the main driver. That's the main driver. So yeah, I wish you all could see me blushing. It does, it, you know, it's so corny. It's like field of dreams, right? Build it and they will come. Um, unlike Kathy, I love literally. sports. Like literally, <laughs> literally. Oh my God. Okay. So. Um, that was amazing. <laughs> so. Yeah, we have another story of the patient who drove two days from Florida. She'd had a stroke. Their marriage was nearly ending. She had no desire. And she told me she saw over five physicians in her local area. And she had military insurance, which we take. And she couldn't afford a plane ticket. But she knew that her um, visit would be covered. So it was worth it to them. And they were going to stay with friends. She drove two days to come see me. It was very humbling, but it also puts a lot of pressure on you to, you know, fix this condition. And I was able to give her a medication and her desire is much better. Uh, But her doctors told her, hey, hey, you had a stroke and you're alive. Just just be thankful for that. Don't don't worry about the sex. That's just that's just icing. Like you're alive. So that should be good enough. And so, yeah, Florida, Washington, D.C., Seattle, like we mentioned, but on a weekly basis, we have people coming in from Indiana and Illinois and Kentucky. So we are pulling people from multiple states on a very regular basis. And the fact that we also offer telehealth and telemedicine has allowed our reach to go even further because sometimes women with sexual health care don't always require an exam. And so we're able to help them. And if they're established in our office, we're able to see them via telehealth, wherever they are around the country, if they've been seen in the office. So 
yeah, we're located in Cincinnati for now, um, growing soon. But uh, yeah, it's been very, very humbling. And it's been really nice to take care of women and allow them to have this type of uh, health care. You know, it, it does make me sad sometimes, right, to think that women have to come from so far to get the sexual health care they deserve. But hearing those patient stories is always inspiring. So tell us, you know, a little bit about what we're going to start doing with this podcast within the next couple of weeks. So we're going to start storytelling. Everyone likes to hear a good story. Those are my favorite podcasts and obviously Kathy's favorite podcasts. So we're going to bring in different patients and providers to season for season two of our Her Voice podcast to share their stories and how they've been impacted by sexual health care, how they were impacted by their dysfunction, and really put, not necessarily faces, but to give you guys an idea, like we can talk about facts and figures and data and research and science, but when you hear these heartbreaking or inspiring stories from patients, it will make you really realize what an impact you can make by practicing good sexual health care. I love the fact that we're doing this too, because from the beginning, we've talked about how important it is to destigmatize the conversation mm-hmm. around female sexual health. And, you know, we talk about destigmatizing it and we talk about how that has to happen. But now I feel like we're doing something about it because we're like, okay, we're not going to wait for everybody else to have the conversation anymore. We're going to talk about it. And hopefully when other women hear stories that we're going to share, they'll realize that they're not alone and it'll empower them to talk about their own stories too. It's also a very powerful gift for the storyteller. We've worked with patients who've been brave enough to go on local TV and share their stories they tell me how they were scared or intimidated to do this because like you said, there's been such bias and a stigma associated with it. And they described to me afterwards how liberating it was. And they were so worried about what their kids would say or what their you know friends would say or people would judge them. And they were shocked at the reception they got from people who were just in admiration and or just said, thank you. I've been struggling with this for years too. And I just never wanted to talk to anyone about it. And you've opened my eyes. So I think that's, it's a fantastic gift for the storyteller as well. The story about the patient who drove up from Florida opens a whole nother side of the discussion. We talk a lot about access to quality healthcare for women right? And the level of healthcare that women have access to, especially in sexual health, is just very different, unfortunately. But I also think within women's sexual health care, there's a dichotomy of access. Because the insurance reimbursement rates are so low in this space, a lot of physicians who specialize in sexual health care go concierge. Women can have access to this type of care, but they're going to have to pay out of pocket for it. And a lot of women can't do that. And the HerMD model is unique because we specialize in sexual health care, but we also do it within an insurance-based model. Why was that so important to you to create a model like that? Well, I knew that, you know, the concierge model works well for people who can afford it. 
But for me, I nearly lost my mother at 45 because of um, gender bias and provider bias and lack of data. So those of you who know and love me know that I'm going to be 45 in a few weeks. And my mom almost died at 45. She ended up having emergent quadruple bypass surgery and she's doing fine. But her doctors blamed her chest pain and her shortness of breath on anxiety, too much caffeine, or costal chondritis, which is a rib inflammation. And it was because of lack of research and just this provider bias that exists that she almost died. And for me, I knew that my promise to my mother and to myself was that I was gonna advocate for women, but I didn't want to be part of the problem. You know, part of the problem is access. And if you put a fiscal limitation on your practice, then you're closing your practice to the vast majority of women. I mean, we see patients from all walks of life because we do take insurance. And for me, I was going to be part of the solution. And so that was, that had to be inherent in my model. And then I recognized that insurance companies were not going to pay me, you know, five or $10 more to sit in a room for 60 minutes So I knew aesthetics was rapidly growing, that it was cash on hand. And the biggest thing was patients had a choice. They didn't have to pay to be part of our practice, but women could elect to get spa services. And that was their choice. But that money, because they pay the day of the service, allowed us to practice the type of medicine that we wanted. And with all the other barriers that we haven't covered with, you know, lack of funding, research for women. In 2018, women's uh, research head to toe received 4% of dollars where the male prostate, which is the size of a walnut, so prostate cancer research, which needs to be done, received 2%. And then we talked about how women are underrepresented in research trials, but then women are also underrepresented in leadership in hospital roles and at the executive level. And then there's this stigma when it comes to sexual health care, right? Like uh, girlfriends are now talking about it, but female desire and arousal hasn't really been discussed uh, mainstream up until now. There's huge limitations with the FDA as far as um, what's happening and how quickly female drugs are approved versus male drugs. You know, men have 26 medications and they need them. Women have two. Viagra was FDA approved in six months and fast-tracked. Addy, our first drug for HSDD that was FDA approved in 2015, took six years. And that should make every woman and every provider listening to this very angry and scratch your head and say, what's happening? And a doctor once said to me, well, they're not going to die from not having sex. And I said, okay, yes, correct. But they may get depressed, they may lose their job, they may lose their spouse. So there are so many other medications that we give to people for quality of life, right? Antidepressants, pain medications. Why are we judging women's sexual health care on mortality rates? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of in medicine. And so we're fighting all of these battles. And a very long answer to your question was, I was not going to be yet another barrier to women's healthcare. You talked a lot about some of the numbers. And so I want to highlight some of those numbers because, 
you know, when you break it down, you're right. That is going to make a lot of women angry. It should make physicians upset. 2015 was the, like that, that was five years ago that women finally got a medication. And now we have two, which the second one was just what last September. And we have, you know, some people point out there are are some menopausal medications for dryness mm-hmm. and sexual pain. So, you know, you can, I guess, quasi include them mm-hmm. uh, because we do talk about sexual pain. But for me currently, that score is 26 to 2. You know, I've done some consulting with the FDA um, and talking to them about the clinical side of it. And a lot of times the FDA is looking at the literature and the data and the research. And I was asked to come and bring a face to the disorder and tell them what it's like on a daily basis, listening to women, hearing their stories and bringing that forward so that the FDA could understand um, what was happening and the demand that was occurring and that women are actually coming forward with these complaints and they deserve treatment options just like men do. And especially because there are millions and millions of women that are struggling with HSDD and millions of women who are struggling with sexual pain. Um, There are millions of women who have orgasm problems. There are so many women that are, and I think these numbers are higher, right? Because they're not getting diagnosed like my patient from Seattle and my patient from Florida. So I think the numbers are even higher than we think. So how long are we going to continue to ignore these patients. And you guys have heard me say this before. I refer to these patients and female patients as the invisible patients. And that's why that's the way I felt about my own mother and watched what happened to her when she was dismissed. So it's millions and millions of women, yet only roughly 30% of OBGYNs are trained for sexual health um, and to treat these patients. So what are, what would you tell other GYNs who are not practicing sexual health care and not providing that to their patients? What, what are they missing out on and how can it really transform their practice? They're missing out on both patient satisfaction and their own satisfaction. We all went into medicine to make a profound difference. And if you're taking care of women, you can't, it's not like you can ignore a whole body system, right? You're not going to ignore their heart health. You're not going to ignore their mental health. So why is it okay that we ignore their sexual health, sexual health care, you know, women who are having sex um, and who have a satisfying sex life, their mental health is better. Their pelvic floor health is better. Their divorce rates are lower. Their overall satisfaction is much higher. So Providers will have the ability to take care of the total patient. Uh, I watch providers all the time lose patients because not that patients die, patients walk away Mm -hmm. because if they're being ignored, there's only so many times now that patients are going to take that and they're going to Google and they're going to find providers who are going to address these, these problems and these issues. And rightfully so. I tell women all the time, if your provider's not listening to you, you need to go find healthcare where it is acceptable to you. You know, the women I take care of from out of town, I'm like, you have to find someone else who's going to continue your care there. And so that's what they're going to see. And so they have this amazing ability to take care of patients where there is such high need right now and the supply is not out there and they can find this niche for themselves and take care of these patients and they'll watch their practice grow. 
you have been a pioneer really in women's sexual health care. You know, I was fortunate to go to a conference and really see and meet some other sexual health care providers who you have, I think you have some amazing colleagues as well around the country. And of course, being the pioneer that you are, you decided to gather up all these trailblazers. So tell us about what's coming up and how other physicians can, can hear from these people who are really dedicating a lot of their time to revolutionizing women's sexual health care. I am so excited to have this group of women, right? It's all women, um, healthcare providers, didn't do that on purpose, who are uh, in different walks of life in sexual health care, right? Because that's the one important thing that I didn't think we addressed is that it's not just the OBGYN or the provider, but we right. work very closely with our counselors and our pelvic floor physical therapists because, you know, I tell people when you treat a car, you, you just can't, you know, treat the engine or the ignition or check the oil. You literally have to take care of all parts of it. And the reason we have such good success rates, because they were looking at some companies were looking at our practice and saying, why do our patients stay on their medications and why are they reporting such high success rates? And it's because we've built this team of providers and therapists and counselors that take care of all facets of sexual health care. And so we have industry leaders, both providers and uh, non-providers that are going to be speaking about this revolutionary healthcare model and changes that are happening in women's sexual health care. We didn't talk about this either. The biggest disconnect when I'm training physicians is they go to these conferences and they learn, right? And they get all of this data and they learn about these studies that are out there. And then they go back to their practice and they're like, well, wait, how do I implement this, right? How do I go from bench, right? Talking about research to bedside. And that is what our conference is about is how do you truly practice sexual health care in real life? It's kind of like I compare it to, you know, when you're watching a runway show, right? A fashion show. And it's like, well, that outfit looks great on her, but how am I going to wear that when I'm going into Target with my kids? Like, how do you take all of this knowledge and this information and really use it in real life to change your patient's life? And our summit for sexual health care is happening June 26th. It's going to be from 8 a.m. to noon Eastern Standard Time. It is free. You heard me right. It's free, mm-hmm. um, but you do have to sign up. And it is uh, really targeted at providers, whether you're a therapist or an internist or an OBGYN. And it's for all levels, whether you've been doing this for a while and you just want to hear the latest and greatest and what's happening, or if you've always wanted to do it but didn't have the time to travel, this is the perfect time to log on and check out these incredible speakers that I so respect that are really trailblazers and industry leaders and are changing and revolutionizing women's healthcare as we know it. And so, Mani, do you want to tell people how they can sign up? You can go to, it's very easy, hermdhealth.com slash events. It's listed right there. And the lineup is pretty incredible and inspiring. Thank you, Somi. Thank you, Kathy. This was amazing. And I'm excited in the next couple of weeks to start hearing more patient stories. Thank you.
This episode of Her Voice has been a production of HerMD, a female-forward wellness center in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can follow HerMD on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerMDHealth and sign up for our newsletter at HerMDHealth.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. They can listen to us on Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're a healthcare provider who is interested in opening a HerMD location, or if you already have your own practice and you'd like to be powered by HerMD, reach out to us at info at HerMDHealth.com. Thank you.